This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Chris has lost his voice. In fact, he sounds like Darth Vader. Josh, could you at least just like your, speak your into the mic for a second? Sounds like Darth Vader. <laughs> Listen to him, guys. He can't do a show, so he's just running tech for us. Uh, but the good news is, Miller and I are here. We're going to talk about charismatic abuses. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Okay. Okay, guys. Well, welcome back. And uh, like you heard Josh say on the intro video, we are crowdfunded. And if you'd be interested in helping us out here on the Remnant Radio, uh, in the description underneath this video, you can click for a one-time donation to PayPal or a recurring small donation for as little as $5 a month to Patreon. Really helps us make this thing happen. Three shows a week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, 4 p.m. Central Standard Time. So, uh, without further ado, we're going to dive into the subject matter of charismatic abuses. We have the basement boy on the other line, also known as Michael Miller. Uh, how you doing over there, Miller? How's the yeah, basement? I'm doing, oh. I'm doing good. It's, uh, <laughs> You're sounding like Josh, bro. With your oh, I'm just messing your with you. Looks, your camera looks bad, <laughs> so it's actually believable. I know, I know. I for some reason my internet is kind of spotty. So forgive me, guys. I've tried to troubleshoot, can't figure it out. It's the basement. Uh, but we, dude. it's the basement, man. Things happen. They get funky in the basement. Uh, so today <laughs> we are talking about charismatic abuses, and I think on the front end of the show we should probably bring a little bit of clarity on what is an abuse versus what is just. Um, I would say misuse or uh, things that can cause pain that aren't necessarily involved in power dynamics. So um, we, we're going to define spiritual abuse or abuse um, as any time there is some sort of uh, power that's being leveraged uh, to harm someone with less power. And so we think there are certain forms of power abuses that involve spiritual matters when it comes to charismatic giftings and charismatic ecclesiologies. Um, so that's kind of what we're going to dive into today. Uh, All right. Michael, you could probably bring some clarity to that because I think we're going to have to define, like as we go through these lists, we're going to have to say, hey, not all of this is exactly abusive. Some of this stuff is just bad doctrine that can actually harm people, but we wouldn't consider yeah. it a... Uh, use of power that hurts someone else. Yeah, I think that uh, most of what we'll talk about will be in the abuse category. And charismatics don't have a monopoly on this. Abuse can happen in any church setting, even. uh, I mean, certainly 
cessationist churches just as well can abuse power and in some of the, the same ways that charismatics abuse power. For instance, our, our first category is ecclesiological abuse, uh, which we're, we're thinking of this sort of culture of honor framework where there's an apostle at top at the top who sort of runs the show and has an elder board. So like some appearance of plurality, but the elders don't really have any power to, uh, they're sort of yes men, they're rubber stampers and the apostle gets the vision at the top. And it's, it's almost like this Moses model, like Moses goes up on the mountain, Moses receives the law, and then Moses comes down and delivers the law to the people. Um, and so the New Testament version of that is kind of like the apostle goes up on the mountain, if you will, and, and comes back and say, this is the vision God has given me. And a lot of times in charismatic churches, uh, this, this vision that the apostle has, well, it's it's a from God vision, and he might even pair it with, well, God told me. God told me this is the vision of the church. And, uh, you, you know, as, as a leader myself, I mean, I'll, I used to – I haven't done this in a while, but I, I used to go on like twice a year, one-week prayer retreats uh, just by myself and just kind of seek the Lord for guidance for my my church. And the only reason I don't do it so much anymore is I have four kids. It's just harder to do, but I – I still pray <laughs> and I, I still try to uh, make that time every day to seek the Lord for my church. And But I really want to be careful about language that's like, hey, guys, in my prayer time, God told me this is what the church is supposed to do. I, I really take plurality seriously. And, uh, and uh, when I say that this is not just a charismatic thing, you don't have to have like a language of God told me. You don't have to call yourself an apostle or apostolic. I mean, any cessationist church can do this. You just get a really powerful teacher, a really influential person, a really celebrity pastor, charismatic leader, and this can happen. Charismatics just do the same thing as everybody else, and then they put God language on it. Uh, they they put the Holy Spirit told me prophecy type of language on it. Miller, uh, what are some of your thoughts about what we're calling this ecclesiological abuse category? Well, I think... Uh, it starts with having a wrong definition of one. Well, sorry, I would say it starts with having a, a wrong ecclesiology, and that ecclesiology, in particular, in the charismatic world, has a wrong definition baked into it when it comes to uh, things like apostolic or the word apostle. And so, I think uh, eventually we'd like to do an episode where we dive more into the the culture of honor book written by Danny Silk, but. Uh, we don't want to dive too much into that today. We just want to say, like, when you have this, some of the wrong definitions, it's going to lead to abuses uh, by its very nature. And so one wrong definition of apostle would be somebody who's super entrepreneurial or has a business acumen or a CEO, uh, um, you know, type, I don't know, that's the best way I could for CEOism in a church. You put this person at the top of the leadership saying, hey, this person has a vision from God. And usually this visionary leader uh, will neglect, I would say, core ecclesiological purposes of the church. So, hey, man, we are a church that's all about evangelism. We just catch the fish. Some other churches can can clean the fish, uh, but we're, we're going to catch the fish. And that is actually a right. problem. We don't get to just evangelize. We also have to make disciples. We have to That's pass right. down the doctrines that were once and for all entrusted to the, to the saints. 
And so uh, I would say those two wrong definitions of apostle are usually going to lead to that. And, and here's a, I mean, anecdotally, Michael, maybe you have some thoughts to add to this, but uh, I can't think of a church that had a vision statement prior to 50 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. And not to say that I think vision statements are bad, but I think you can create a vision statement or that that apostolic leader could have a vision that's so church specific or sorry, so ministry specific that it fails to fulfill all the ministries of the church. Right. Um, so what do you think about so that? let's let's imagine, though, that like church under the bridge. OK, it's church for homeless people. They don't prohibit non-homeless people from coming, but most people just aren't going to go to church under a bridge unless they're interested in that kind of ministry. And surely I'm, I'm sure that whoever oversees that has a vision for serving homeless people. Um, I think probably what you would say, Miller, is, and honestly, I can't even remember if Church Under the Bridge is a parachurch or if it's like a real church, but let's imagine for a moment it's a real church. Like, um, I think what I hear you saying, Miller, is like, let, let's say that leader has a real vision for homeless, reaching homeless people. You're saying, yeah. you know, that's okay, but you can't you can't say exclude certain kinds of people, say you're not allowed because you're not homeless, or you you can't um you can't have a vision for say getting homeless people saved but not actually discipling them. You can't have a vision that's like, hey, well, we're gonna feed the homeless, but we're not gonna teach them to pray and read their Bibles. And like uh you have to have if you are a church, you have to do the things that God says a church must do. And so uh, it, I guess I'm trying to parse this out for, uh, for us, Miller, because w- that language of vision, I mean, a lot of probably really good churches will use that language and say, hey, here's the vision. Is there a way to do, is there a way to communicate, hey, here's the vision uh, that we feel like God's given the elders of the church that's not necessarily going to leave some people out and fulfill all the purposes of the church? Do you think that's possible? Yeah, I mean, I think when your vision statements are, are pretty general in, in the sense that, like, uh, we feel like it's our job, our vision is to seek God, love one another, sorry, worship God, uh, love one another, and love the world around us. Like, those those phrases kind of encompass the whole array of things. And, how, and, it, and it's not so specific that it's defining how we love one another to one particular way of loving one another. Or worshiping God, it's not defining one particular way of worshiping God. Um, so when you add in something to the vision statement where uh, it, it does get start get exclusive, like, hey, we're going to love one another through um, having, you know, community. Um, even that is, is still pretty general, but it actually could create a problem um, in that you may not be making disciples. You may be having potluck dinners and you may be... Um, praying for one another, but then when it comes to actually teaching the doctrines of the faith, those may not be done. And that's actually something we're commanded to do. We don't get a choice on that. Um, right. Well, so, let's come back to the—to come back to the subject of abuse, it seems to me like where this really hits the place of abuse is if it's in the vision category, it's— it's certain groups of people being excluded because we don't need your gifts. Like the, you know, the eye says to the, or the hand says to the foot, I have no need of you. 
because my vision is to be this kind of church, not that kind of church. And so you cut off certain people who don't have the kind of gifts and and callings that you're looking for. Oh, we don't need evangelists in this church. We just need, the, you know, shepherds yeah. or whatever it is. Uh, so maybe that's one category, but it, it feels like probably the most common form of what we're calling ecclesiological abuse. When you hear that word ecclesiology, it's just pertaining to the church and church governance, church structure. Um, it seems to me that like that one guy at the top, the greatest form of abuse uh, would be when he's using his power to take things from the people. Like Miller, help us understand like maybe that dimension of somebody saying, I'm an apostle, this is my vision, and how that specifically brings harm to people to advantage the leader. Because that would be what abuse really well, is. In the moment you hear the phrase, are you going to submit to my vision? That right there, that kind of pressure being placed onto, uh, I think Josh fell asleep at the. Uh, the Guys, you got to forgive thing. Josh. He's he's sick. <laughs> he thinks he might have COVID. So these drugs yeah. are wonderful. Is all I have to say. <laughs> Dude, Darth Vader comes uh, back on the podcast. Yeah, I'm sorry. So anyway, the moment you hear somebody say, "Are you going to submit to my vision?" Uh, that right there is this is this or the vision God has given me. Um, and by the very nature of the position, the power dynamic, uh, if you say anything other than, yes, I submit, you're, you're going to get pushed out. And the reason you're going to get pushed out is because on some level that person feels like you're being defiant uh, against them, which is therefore defiant against God. Um, right. and, and that's problematic because the scriptures themselves tell us like, hey, we have to do these things as a church. And so uh, and now now let me also just caveat here, because I, like somebody comes to me at my church and says, hey, we are actually not doing anything for the homeless, you know, the the widow and the orphan. And I'm like, you know what? We're right. Um, we're not doing anything for the widow and orphan. But to be fair, we don't have any widows in our church and we don't have any orphans in our church. OK, well, what about outside of our church? It's like, OK, that's that's great. Let's let's if you want to run with that, I'm all for it. Um, but if if the pastor would then to say, hey, you know what? That's just not what our church is about. OK, you got a problem because James says to visit the widow and orphan in the midst of the distress is pure and undefiled religion. Right. Like that. Well, that is what but, we're called to do. right. So he's but even in that place of authority, like you've reflected somebody who or you portrayed somebody who is kind of untouchable. In his authority, like you can't say maybe we should do this. Maybe it has to be his idea, uh, which kind of touches on this other like tagline of charismatic abuse of, of just like do not touch the Lord's anointed. Like, hey, if this person is the anointed person of God, never say anything negative about them, never offer any feedback. And there is such a thing as honoring your leaders, but that doesn't mean leaders shouldn't receive feedback. They actually should. Proverbs say a wise man loves correction. There's a total... And, and if, if if that apostolic leader cuts off feedback loop loops unless it's positive feedback, uh, then you can be sure that this church is careening down a, a path of chewing people up and spitting people out. And that's well, just what it's going to become. That's that's a difficult thing because most people in those positions, when they have that kind of authority, they don't realize that people are only going to tell them what they want to hear. 
And the reason they don't realize it is because they don't realize that people are actually afraid of them. Um, right. When you're, but that's the thing the, the is they, they the end up the building, they end up be, building a culture. And we talked about this some on our Monday episode, but of fear and control. So they express, uh, sometimes it's through rage. Sometimes it's through passive aggression. Uh, but in these different ways, they build this culture of fear and control. So people feel like, you know, every time they, they try this or they try that, they're, you know, they're getting this like harsh response. And so that leader has created this culture where, where people can't challenge them. And so they would say, oh, please give me feedback. I would welcome feedback. But then in their next breath, they're passive aggressively no, you, you're criticizing gonna somebody. You're, right. you're Somebody's pay for paying for it. So get, right. again, that, that can happen in any church. But oh, yeah. when somebody considers themselves the apostolic leader of the church, it can take a special kind of a whole new expression now. And to be fair, I'm actually language. I'm not against a leader being apostolic. I think the former senior pastor of my church, Sam storms is apostolic in his gifting. And, um, and I think that's great. So it doesn't have to be an abusive thing. It just too often is. Let's talk yeah, about the next one. So we talked about ecclesiological well, abuse. Why don't we move to prophetic abuse? Can you talk to us well, about that a little bit, Miller? We, we got to go back, though, because we, we mentioned bad definitions of apostle, that being the CEO, the visionary leader, uh, where a vision is so exclusive, they, they leave out core ecclesiological purposes. But what is an actual apostle? Because we believe in that. We, we think there we are apostles today. And so it'd be worthwhile just to give a short definition to that. Um, which I think what we wrote, where did we write this? Well, uh, one who I, is, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, an apostle, apostle just means a sent one, okay? Which I think suggests this is probably not just like a um, senior pastor who's been in place for 30 years and has no sort of translocal authority or translocal influence might be a better word. Like I, I think an apostle has to have that, a, a translocal influence of some kind and um, get 21st century is, is just kind of interesting. I, you know, I was one of the guys who discipled me, his name was David Watson and he was super apostolic responsible for many thousands of churches being planted around the world. Um, he was mentoring leaders in all kinds of countries around the world from DFW. Uh, I mean, countries that were like persecuted, like, um, you you couldn't travel to those countries. He was apostolic in a way that technology freed him up to um, to be. When I look at the Apostle Paul's ministry as as sort of uh, an example apostle, he did spend a few years in Ephesus. He he wouldn't just like pop from one place to another to another to another. I mean, he'd really kind of plant there and invest some time there, but then he would move on. And, uh, and so I do think there has to be some kind of translocal influence for someone to be an apostle for it to really be truly categorized as a sent one. Um, so, but probably, you know, I think second Corinthians eight twenty three. speaking of apostles to the churches, it's some, some sort of missionary bent, some sort of going out bent and, and building up churches. Paul says his apostolic authority was for building up churches, but I think it's also for planting churches. So something like that is probably what what would fit our category. But key thing is not just being a great visionary leader, not just being entrepreneurial and CEO like those. 
those things are not necessarily apostolic at all. And we've just, I think, borrowed business book definitions and then slapped the word apostle on it because it sounds a little better than CEO to some people. So that's, and, that's not it. And sometimes that leads to, to real abuse. And, and Paul will say, like, it, you know, God's given me authority not for tearing you down, but for building you up. But there's, we, we have a, trans local authority. Are we apostles, Michael? If we, <laughs> we have influence just over a lot of churches, are we apostles? I just I'm not say saying no. it's just, I, I dislike that definition so much. <laughs> okay. Well then what's your definition, Josh? From, from the shadows. Yeah. <laughs> I witness protection. <laughs> My answer is church planter. Like if you've planted yeah. three churches, I could say you're graced supernaturally to plant churches. That's easy. Mm -hmm. I, I, I included, I included church Josh. planting in mine. I included church planting in mine. I definitely think Let that's me, part of it. Let me just say, but here's you, the problem. You also have when Timothy. It, when it comes to apostles, if, Go you, ahead, if you say that the apostle is an ecclesiological position in the church, you've already fallen into a problem. Um, it's not an ecclesiological position in the church. So, and, and the reason why that's a problem is, let's say somebody is really called to be an apostle and they show up to your church. Do they get to suddenly redirect things? To get to call shots and, and make decisions? No. Mm -hmm. It doesn't... Many, let's say they really are called to be apostolic. That does not mean they get to run the church. Being having an apostolic gift is not uh, does not mean authority to make decisions, um, mm -hmm. in any sense. Now, if they're an elder yeah. in a church, that's what churches are governed by. So, yeah, I, I would. Yeah. We can. You guys can agree to disagree, but I don't want to well, miss out. No, on the it's rest not. Of the I don't content. disagree. I I included church planting in mine. I I wasn't. Uh, presenting trans translocal influence as sufficient to make one apostle. Uh, but I would say that it is necessary. Like you have to have some kind of translocal influence in order to be a sent one. I think Josh would agree with that. Um, um, no, I, I think when it comes to influence, like every YouTube 13 year old, who's got 20,000 subscribers can be an apostle. Yeah, you're not understanding me, Josh. Scary. I'm saying, yeah, he, he no, yeah, no, I, I, I I'm saying translocal influence needs to be there, but I'm not saying that just cause you have that you're an apostle. Yeah, I, I, right. I, I would agree with you on church planting. And I've said that yeah. many times on the show. I've said that, uh, church planting missionary, like, uh, I've used those words almost interchangeably at times. Uh, in fact, that's why I quoted 2 Corinthians 8.23. Earlier, apostles to the churches or uh, missionaries, messengers to the churches. Uh, okay, cool. So um, anyway, but Josh, please feel free to jump in from from the dark over there. Could, we couldn't even, <laughs> for, the, for you who are just listening and not watching, we don't even get a visual of Josh because he's, he's not feeling well. But um, Anyway, Josh, we hope you get to feeling better. But let's talk prophetic abuse a little bit. Miller, uh, what direction do we want to sure. go with that? Yeah, I, I, again, when this is a matter of definition as well. So some people will see a prophet as a person having an ecclesiological position in the church. When you see it as an ecclesiological position in the church, these kind of abuses could take place. Um, one of them being the God told me the direction that uh, for the church is this. Okay, well, again, the, the direction of the church has already been determined by Jesus. He's already given the vision of the church, clearly spelled out in Scripture. Now, how you carry that vision out in your local community is to be governed and decided upon by the elders. 
Now, let's say, though, that you have a person who's a prophet, and they also happen to be an elder. Do they get to help in that? Absolutely. Um, and then what do we do with a person who is a prophet but is not an elder but feels like God has told them something? Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you do in your church, Michael, when a, a person who's prophetic in your community says, hey, I really feel like God has showed me you know, something that the church needs to address, uh, a ministry that's lacking that we need to employ? What do you think about that? Uh, I mean, I just invite them to submit it to the elders and we'll pray about it for sure. I mean, even somebody of not much account in the church that they're just like, hey, I feel like I had this prophetic word. I mean, we'll pray through any prophetic word. Am I answering your question, Miller? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. So the fact is you're making room for them to express their gift in your church and you're actually taking serious what they've submitted to you, but you're not allowing them to lord over the elders. That's right. Well, and and that's a mistake that I think some churches make. And that is they make it so that, I mean, so in our ecclesiological abuse, it was like so that the apostle runs the church. Well, another one is allowing the prophets to run the church by just like, hey, you have this gift so you can run the church. But the Bible doesn't say that uh, prophets are to direct the affairs of the church. First Timothy 5 uh, says that the elders are to direct the affairs of the church. And so, uh, and and Paul will also say, if anyone is a prophet or thinks he is a prophet, let him acknowledge that what I say to you is the Lord's command. And and so Paul, Paul speaking to the church that he planted, said, hey, the prophets can't just sit around and tell me what to do. Now, he does present a, a sort of order of service for prophetic words to be weighed. And I'm sure Paul would weigh anything that a prophet said, but not if it contradicted what the Lord had, had clearly uh, given him as the one who planted the church in Corinth. And so, uh, and, and so I, I mean, that's just like a, a general principle of how does church authority and prophetic authority interact? And there is, uh, Miller, this does raise a question because, you know, our cessationist friends are, are watching and they're saying, but if you're a prophet, you're speaking the word of God. So automatically that's going to take authority over any church leader. What would you say to that? Uh, I would say that prophecy is not authoritative on the level of Scripture, and prophets are, and their words are not the ones governing the church. The, that is clearly spelled out in Scripture. Elders are to govern the church. And so, again, the, their prophecy is still going to have to be an act of submission and a gift to be given away, not an act of lordship and meant to be uh, overlorded on somebody. Right, um, but again, this this is more of a misuse, though. We we really haven't di- dived into the abusive part of using prophecy, which would be when a person has power in a church and they're misusing prophecy to right. hurt others. Well, here would be an abuse um, if a prophet is cheating, and we hear some stories of these where it's like you know looking up social media stuff and Facebook and this and that in order to make themselves look good. So they're manipulating people, manipulating their emotions. So they're like, oh, wow, that's a word from God. And so you're you're getting their accolades and you're getting all this attention. You're probably getting their money. You're probably getting book deals from it. And so you're getting a whole lot, but it's through deceit and at the expense of people who are manipulated so that would that would be a huge one, but but here's one that's like even on that there's a spectrum because I've you know heard of some cases of lying prophets. Uh, there are also those 
who maybe don't give, who are not just like fully forthright about what they know naturally. So I've seen, for instance, a prophetic person like prophesy from the stage, like, Hey, I just felt like that as you're praying about like you're, you're praying about this job. And I, I just felt like the Lord says that, um, you're supposed to do this instead of that. And, uh, maybe says a few other things and the people around are like, Oh my gosh, that, that person is praying about a job. This is a word of knowledge. This is really from the Lord. And, and so there's this sense in the room of like how much of a thing uh, of a word from God this is. But what that person didn't say off the bat was that they actually knew that person was praying about a job. And maybe they did have an attached prophetic word to it, but it uh, to the word of knowledge where they, they had this de- supposedly... De- so it's it's like they didn't it's like they mixed it together. I would put that like it's on the spectrum of dishonesty. It's not the same level of like looking up someone's social media post, but it's still dishonest. If I'm prophesying over somebody and I have some natural knowledge, I will say, "Hey, I actually know this naturally, but here's what I felt like God was saying supernaturally." And I try to bring that clarity because I just I don't want to pretend that I'm more of a prophet than I am. And so, uh that both of those, I would say, are abuse, but I would put them on a different, uh, a different level, a different scale. Yeah, another prophetic abuse is when a leader in a church uses, well, here's what God showed me when it comes to telling somebody what to do. Um, and, and, and by that, I mean they're authoritatively telling that person what to do. Like, in other words, are you going to submit to the word of God or the word that God has given me? Mm-hmm. Um, when that word is not something spelled out clearly in scripture, uh, nor is it, or possibly not something that person has authority to make someone submit mm-hmm. to. So yeah. if a prophet is a leader in a church, uh, and he says, God told me you're to marry this person. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. That prophet does not have the authority to tell you to do that. Even if they're an elder in your church, they don't have the, and that, that that's another just ecclesiological issue is elders. There are things they have authority to do and, and ask people to submit to, and there are things that they don't have the authority to do. And sometimes because people are prophetic, they think they can take extra liberties with their authority because they feel like they have the word of God behind it. And, and this can be an incredibly destructive thing, uh, especially when it's a word that's directive in nature like where you are mm-hmm. to be. Now, Now I didn't see this, and in, in, I haven't seen this yet, uh, although I know it's happened in charismatic churches, but I remember this happening in the Mormon church. Um, again, my, my mom was Mormon, or sorry, my mom was Jewish, my dad was Mormon. And so my mom raised us in the Mormon church till we were seven, and then, you know, got delivered and free. Um, but I remember part of the reason my mom went out of the Mormon church, which she didn't believe in it to begin with. Um, but then another part of it was, one of their presbyters or prophets was telling her, God told me, and then was trying to tell her what decisions to make about her life when it came to the relationship with my father, who's cheater, drug abuser, uh, you know, stole things. Um, all of those things were gone, going on. And so that was an abusive thing that my mom experienced. And again, uh, that's the Mormon church, obviously, but that, that kind of stuff happens in charismatic churches today. Yeah. Hey, there's a question in the chat from Matt Schneider. He says, if a a prophet uh, really is hearing from God, why shouldn't a Christian submit to the prophet? Uh, Well, there has to be discernment. 
And, and so I think what we have to dif differentiate between is the, the revelation and the totality of what we're calling the prophecy. And these are sometimes muddied up, especially by cessationists. They think this is one and the same. That's why they say every, if it comes from God, if it's the word of, of God, it, it can't be a lie. And we would say that's true if it's truly the word from God. But, uh, but we can muddle the interpretation. The revelation itself is always without error. But what we're calling if the it's prophecy includes not just the revelation, but how it's communicated, how it's interpreted, how it's communicated. And so all of that is the prophecy. And we've had many shows where we've unpacked this with uh, many Bible verses. Um, and so what we would say is you have to discern whether or not this is from the Lord or not, just like the Apostle Paul does. And he feels a freedom to say, after like three groups of prophetic people urge him not to go to Jerusalem, he says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? The Lord told me to go to Jerusalem. So he's going to go and they say, okay, the Lord's will be done. And, uh, and so in this, we, we have to give the person freedom to discern. So it's abuse if we communicate in such a way that we don't give the person freedom to discern. We basically say, oh, you're in sin if you don't do what I discern God is saying. Uh, and in, on the same token, like if we're on this side and we're, um, well, actually, you know, I'm, I'm just going to stop there. Miller, what, what do you think of that? Have you seen that before? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot to comment on that. I do. There, there was one comment that Josh put in our show notes that I actually like that one hits kind of close to home, uh, because I've experienced this one firsthand, um, where, uh, somebody who's a prophet, you know, and they're, they're telling you which direction the church should go in or they're apostolic or they're claiming apostolic. And they're telling you which direction the church should go in and you're bucking up against it because you don't feel like it aligns with the scriptures. And they'll say, ah, well, that's just because you're a teacher and not a prophet. Ugh. Mm. okay. Right. That's a hard one. I, and I've, I, I had that happen to me, you know, being told, well, that's because you're a teacher. Um, and again, it's, this is where the, the, um, the language gets kind of, muddled here because you're presuming that a teacher by their very nature and gift set are not going to be geared for directing the church just for debating theology. And so you're minimizing the gift of teaching and uh, maximizing the gift of prophecy when in reality all is subject to the clear teaching of the scripture, uh, not That's the right. person interpreting it with their theology, nor the person who's prophesying. Yeah. Um, that, that does bring up another, maybe kind of an, another subject. And so that is teaching abuses, because right. even though we've labeled this show charismatic abuses, teaching is uh, one of the charismata, one of the spiritual gifts. And so uh, when I think about teaching abuses, this is, this is when a teaching is used to benefit one person and harm another. And the Pharisees kind of did this whenever they, uh, they said, well... If uh, I don't have to honor my parents because so they're actually violating the scripture because this money that I would have given them is Corbin. It's a gift 
dedicated to God. And so they end up kind of making themselves look holier as though they're like giving so much to God, but they're not like actually taking care of their families, honoring their parents. And so Jesus calls them out that because of your tradition, you're actually violating the scriptures. Another thing I think of with the Pharisees is that they, um, Jesus will say to them, uh, that you put heavy burdens on people's shoulder uh, on people's shoulders, but you yourselves are unwilling to lift a finger. And I think a lot of teaching ministry is like hurling obligations on people. And hey, I'll be the first to say there are real obligations. Like there is like holiness. We should teach holiness and the commands of Jesus. So there are obligations to the Christian life. Um, now there's grace that empowers us to fulfill those obligations. Uh, but I found that a lot of times teaching ministry can be used to basically swallow up everyone's time and energy and resources so that the church, instead of being this sort of life-giving organism, starts to devour people and devour their like their everything. And their, it, it sort of like crushes their soul. And the teaching ministry is used to do this. And I think one of the, one of the standards and the way you know this is happening is when Jesus says, you refuse to lift a finger to lift, uh, you know, to lift a finger yourself is that the burdens are all placed on the other people, but not themselves. And when we look at, say, the, the ministry of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he says, by the grace of God, I worked harder than all of them. Uh, I think pastors and teachers should uh, should actually work at least as hard as anybody else, uh, if not harder as just models of like what it what gospel ministry is really supposed to look like so that we're not just hurling obligations that we're not willing to lift like yes there are real obligations but hey as a teacher i don't just teach with my words i teach with my life so that i can say with the apostle paul first corinthians 11 1 follow me as i follow christ uh so th those are a couple of just examples of uh of teaching uh teaching abuses miller have you seen that before uh I mean, the heaping obligation, or, do you, or yeah. do you have anything to add to it? Well, I, I would add that part of the reason we would even mentioning that we would even mention teaching abuses is because we see the gift of teaching as just as much a charismatic gifting as prophecy or, uh, or apostles or evangelists or pastors. We, we don't see it as separate. So I think when a person is teaching the scriptures, it is just as much of a supernatural gift as when a person is prophesying. Um, so that said, though, um, yeah, I think one of the uh, one of the other abuses of a teacher is when they teach or they heap obligations that go beyond the boundaries of Scripture or they interpret Scripture to such a degree that it requires more from people than what God ever intended. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, you, you kind of already mentioned it, the the putting on them a load that they themselves aren't willing to bear. But I would just say putting on a load that the scriptures themselves do not command. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, I just seen in some sense. I, I've seen before like volunteers at churches, like heavy pressured. Like if you want to be like in the in group, like putting in 20 and 30 hours a week of, of labor for the church. Now, if you want to do that, that's cool. Uh, I did that in my college years. I did like, 20 hours a week of free ministry to the church. But like I was passionate about it. I loved it. I didn't feel like, I don't know, pressure to do it. It wasn't an abusive situation, but I, I have seen, I mean, cause you can teach the Bible in such a way, like the way you're framing oh. the Bible is therefore 
if you're not doing this, if you're not this Navy SEAL Christian, if you're not doing all of these things in the church, you're not really a member in good standing. I would say that's abuse. And I think that touches too on pastoral abuse, which is another form of ecclesiological abuse. But uh, you remember the shepherding movement where people would be like, I was just at dinner with somebody on Sunday night that uh, their family was caught up in something really similar to this. Um, and, And it was just like, their family had to go like if they wanted to if the dad wanted to change jobs if they wanted to buy a different house uh if they wanted to buy a certain car like literally everything in fact i heard two stories about this this week um another one was a church in dallas and uh but like there was so much scrutiny over every decision that the people had to come to the pastor so the person actually lost their sense of autonomy like they lost like we want to be, we don't want to be independent. We don't want to be dependent. We want to be interdependent. And that actually shifts the spectrum to like, I'm totally dependent upon the shepherd. That's not a healthy relationship. And, and I think it's healthy for shepherds to also realize I, I may be a shepherd, but I'm also a sheep. And Jesus is the real senior pastor of every church. And so uh, it, it, even though there is like leadership in the church, I, I'm not like doing away with that. Hebrews 13, obey your leaders. Like there is a real pastoral authority. There is also like a, a concurrent humility that we need to have. Like, you know what? I'm not supposed to be God to these people. Like they don't need a second Holy Spirit telling them to do every single decision. And, um, and so I've also seen that before. Yeah, I don't know if I have much to add to that. I think honestly, the the shepherd sheep movement—it's just the them stepping beyond the boundaries of scripture when it comes to eldership and pastoring. Um, right. Well, then let's yeah. move to the healing ministry because I know, like we said, I, we labeled the show "Charismatic Abuses," and most people are thinking about that. And we spent a little bit of time talking about, about pastoring and teaching, but but we wanted to because I I. Th- think it's just too common that when we think about spiritual gifts, we think about tongues, healing, prophecy, words of knowledge, all of these things, and all of that spiritual gifts, but it's just as much, 1 Corinthians 12, a manifestation of the Spirit. Every spiritual gift is a manifestation of the Spirit. Even teaching ministry, it's a manifestation of the Spirit. And it's it's not just like I could get an unbelieving Greek professor to stand up and teach the New Testament and be the same thing just because they got the message of Paul right, that there's actually an anointing of the Holy Spirit for bringing about heart change. That's at least what the spiritual gift is. And uh, and so we, we want to bring that kind of balance, acknowledge that, and, and also acknowledge that all the gifts of the Holy Spirit can be abused. Uh, the next one in our list is healing ministry. And and here's here's one that I've seen before. Miller, let me ask you about this with just the, uh, the way some people define faith is psychological certainty. Um, that like, it, you the know, show notes like say psycho certainty, <laughs> psycho certainty. Yeah. I abbreviated it, <laughs> but, um, have you ever seen this before Miller where somebody is like, um, you're, you pray for them to be healed. And then you're like, do you feel better? And they're like, well, they don't want to say that they don't, even though they don't, they just say, I believe that I am healed. I'm just waiting for it to manifest. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and they'll well, go to the scripture, by his wounds we're healed. And they say, look, we are healed. That's what it means. I'm healed right now. I'm just waiting for it to be manifest. Well, I mean, it's all it's going to manifest for all of us at the resurrection. We'll all get a complete healing then. But in the meantime, like, let's just be honest. If, if I'm sick, I'm sick. 
you know, and like when the scripture says, if, uh, if you're sick, call the elders of the church and go receive healing. But if you won't even admit you're sick, you're not even going to go to the elders of the church. So uh, to me, it's just like, it creates this sort of wordplay. And I think the point where it, where it becomes abusive is you, you start to pressure people into actually denying reality. And man, here's where that can get real, real rough is, um, man, I, I remember talking to somebody who'd lost her husband like eight months ago and she was still hoping for a resurrection. And man, the pastors in her church like needed to be saying like, it really is time to move on. But like just this idea of like, I'm believing for it and this psychological certainty, like it's going to ha happen. Like it's, it's like, uh, sometimes we call this over-realized eschatology because like we're all believing that, I mean, eschatology, like the last days we're all believing that at the last day and when jesus returns that wrong things are made right and we receive our resurrection bodies like it's all happening then but like uh like like the making right of every wrong thing but we we start to so import that into our present that it it puts people in this place of like they actually just start to sound like crazy people and they lose touch with reality and it causes them not to be able to actually care for themselves. Some of them won't go to doctors, uh, causes them to not be able to grieve properly like this woman I talked about. And, and I would just say, man, I don't know if you would call that abuse as much as misuse. It's just a, a really bad handling of the scripture. I don't know. What would you call it, Miller? It, it becomes abuse when the elder of a church is neglecting to tell the woman the truth. Like, hey, this is not how this works. Um, right. And you're not able to grieve. And, and a good... Uh, elder is going to tell them, hey, it's time to grieve and let this go. Um, and that's the nature of eldering. Like, you're not abusive just because you cause people pain. You're abusive when you're using your power to cause yourself gain and then pain. Um, and the, the telling somebody, for instance, we call it tough love, but telling people the truth is actually good for them. That's not an abusive right. thing. And as an right. elder in a church, I may tell you something that's going to hurt your feelings, um, but it's because that is honestly the best thing to hear. Now, there are other abuses that come with healing ministry. And I would say, you know, two that I can think of off the bat. Uh, and I think this one actually should apply to the prophetic as well, is anytime you charge people to pray for them uh, or anytime you charge somebody to prophesy to them. Uh, anytime you charge, like you start selling things like cloths that you've used, clothes that you've worn, vials of water, vials of oils, um, all of these kind of things, or you're telling people to give more to your ministry so that you can keep praying for the sick, uh, because God has anointed you to be the special healer or special prophet. Um, these are, these are abuses. Uh, you're, you're literally, it's costing other people, um, their resources. People will sell I mean, they were literally, I think of the, uh, the woman who had the issue of blood, it said that she suffered much at the hands of the doctors. Okay. It's because she was technically being abused by them. She was suffering under their care. They were receiving money and she was getting nothing for it. And so the same thing can be true. In Interesting that it wasn't the Luke. Gift of healing. Interesting right, that yeah. Luke, the physician doesn't mention that. Yeah. And then there's <laughs> He doesn't give us that where, little detail. Um, right. Right. Another so one I mentioned is the lordship because of your gifting, telling people they should listen to you or do what you say because of the miracles you've seen. And so I, I can think of a buddy of mine who uh, he, I would say, fell under the, the uh, guise of a false prophet, false apostle. This guy was performing signs and wonders. 
and my buddy, he literally watched this man pull someone out of a wheelchair. And then when this guy, when he would try to confront him about some character issues, he would throw it back on him and say, well, the Lord showed me this about you. And my buddy felt so hard. It was so hard for him to question that guy because he literally saw him pull someone out of a wheelchair. So right, you, like there is a real, there is real because power. That person has such displays of power. Right, they, because you think right. that person like has I, such a display of power, it's it's hard to question them. I I think that's a that's a great point because I think what a lot of times we assume is that because somebody is a and and Josh who's sick while we're talking about healing, um, Lord and and not making the camera switch, but Josh, sorry that you're, you're feeling bad. We're praying for you, <laughs> but. Um, I think sometimes when we talk about the, like, say the the prosperity gospel and using a, a supposed healing gift in order uh, to get more money, I think a lot of times people assume that they don't actually have a healing gift because they're leveraging it for the sake of money. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. Like, I would say Benny Hinn for sure throughout his life, by his own admission, actually, now whether he repented of that, you know, people debate over. Uh, we're not going to get into that, but um, over the course of his life, I think it's uh, pretty easy to argue that he bought in big to the prosperity gospel and he leveraged whatever gifts he had, regardless of what you believe about Benny Hinn, whatever gifts he had, he leveraged for the sake of financial gain. I mean, golly, uh, it's it's pretty, pretty insane. However, with that said, like, I don't think that means he didn't have a healing gift. In fact, uh, Michael, you and I both know a guy named Paul Teske, a Lutheran, retired now, but Lutheran pastor who had a stroke while he was preaching, um, went to the hospital and uh, like lost, I think it was the left side of his body and was taken to a Benny Hinn conference. And Benny Hinn literally like he did the I don't know if he knocked him on the forehead or if he hit him with the jacket. I can't, I don't think he hit him with the jacket, but he, he did the, the whole like hit you on the forehead thing. And Paul falls out and Paul gets up and he's completely healed. I, we've, I've talked extensively with Paul about this. Now, someone could say Benny Hinn is a false believer and it's a fake miracle, Matthew chapter seven. I don't know enough about Benny Hinn to like legit know his heart if he's a believer or he's not. I know the prosperity gospel is super wicked and horrific. And it's a false it's, gospel. We would say that it's a false gospel. gospel. So false it's possible. Gospel. I will say it's possible that he's a false prophet and it was totally a fake, like demonic miracle. It's also possible that he's like a really like, you know, he's been led astray into this false prosperity thing. And that he has a real healing gift that he manipulated and used in terrible ways to leverage people. You know, people want to, in fact, Justin Peters was like in our chat, like asking us last week, are you, do you guys think Benny Hinn is saved or not? I don't think that I, it's like my job to really say that. Uh, I think, you know, Paul tells Timothy, the Lord knows those who are his. And when someone's at a distance and I've never met them before, I would say it's possible that he is and it's possible that he isn't. I personally don't know, and I don't think it's my job to really say that about somebody I've never met. With that said, I think it's possible that he has a real healing gift that he leveraged for bad purposes. I also think it's possible that some kind of demonic miracles have been performed. 
But I think what can't be denied is I, I think there is some real healing power um, that is somehow used in Benny Hinn's ministry. What? And I, that's I, just a, that's a confusing thing. I, it's hard to even know what to make of that, but it's, it's there. I don't personally have a problem with the idea that people can, people who are not of God using the power of God. Um, now I'm not saying that's the case with Benny or not. I really don't know. Um, I do know that people have been healed in his meetings. I think those things are absolutely confirmable. I don't deny that those are real healings. And I don't deny even that God used those healings to bring those people closer to him. Paul Teske being a case in point. I know Paul and I, I believe his story and I think he's a wonderful man. Um, I don't necessarily know Benny Hinn and I don't know his background. I do know that I've heard prosperity gospel teachings and I think the prosperity gospel is a false gospel. And then I would just to be clear, I think there are people out there that preach a false gospel and the true gospel and they don't know the difference between the two. Uh, and I think this happens with moral therapeutic deism. So we're, I'm getting in the weeds here, but I just want a little caveat there. Um, let's talk about more healing abuses. Um, one, I would say a healing abuse is uh, forcing people to receive prayer who don't want it. Yeah. Am I lagging? Yeah. Oh, well, no, I, I think that's for sure one. I mean, it, it becomes a challenge. I mean, sometimes... I mean, we live in this fallen world. I mean, my wife has some long-term, uh, long-term health issues. Three of them, up through May, have been. She's had through for ten years. It might have been April, April or May. She's had for ten years. Uh, one of them, after ten years, ten years of daily prayers, one of them was healed. It was glaucoma. Doctor said it's impossible to heal this, but it's healed. Um, so, but she has two remaining ones. Uh, one. Uh, anyway, doesn't matter. Uh, not, doesn't matter in the sense I'm not going to get into the detail. But uh, point being that, like, it would be a hassle if every time she came to church, 50 people were surrounding her and wanting to surround her with like 30 minutes of of prayer. Like, even if it was good hearted, like I like, I think that you just have to respect people's boundaries and say like you maybe say, can I pray for you? Or would you, you know, like even our healing does, I teach them to say like, can I place, may I place a hand on your shoulder or something like that? But, um, I don't know, Miller, uh, there's another side of it where it's like, I'm glad when people want to pray for her. That's awesome. So like I, and I, I want people in church, like offering to pray for people who are sick and injured and that kind of thing. So, how do you even balance uh, somebody's that? in a wheelchair? It, it just it's a matter of if they want it or not. People who are in wheelchairs, right. they show up to church through they believe in healing. They don't want to go to the church. Because sometimes right. they just want to show up and sometimes they want other issues in their life to be addressed and not just the thing that is so obvious in front of everybody. Right. And yeah. And so I think if I was to approach somebody in that situation, hey, they're in a wheelchair, I'm always going to say, hey, I don't want you to feel any pressure to say yes to this. And if anything, if you want to say no, I always give those kind of caveats to let them know they have the freedom to choose what they want in this situation. And then, I, and then I'd ask if they want me to pray. If they don't, I say, well, is there anything else you want prayer for? Um, I don't mind that. I just think it's important that some people, they're going to feel a lot of pressure to have to receive prayer from people when they may have other things going on in their mind and out of other people's zeal that can actually put a lot of pressure. Um, and then also the eschatology itself. If you believe that they're supposed to be healed and that it's always God's will every single time you pray that a person be made well, then uh, you may 
I mean, that would also motivate you. Yeah, but if I pray, you're going to get healed, you know, because every time. And so you may just ignore their request because you think you know better in that moment. And that is abusive. Right. So. Miller, I think we probably have time for one more. I know we had some more in our show notes. Maybe we'll we'll do some more next week. But uh, let's talk about inner healing for a moment. We've done some episodes on inner healing. We had an episode a while back with Jack Deere about inner healing. I encourage you guys to go check that out. We've also done... Uh, episodes on uh, one on revival culture. You can search that. And um, if you're part of that, you probably know what I'm talking about. It can be abusive, but maybe just one more in the area of healing because we're right here at time at about an hour. And, um, and that's just the area of inner healing. And um, here's something that I've seen sometimes, Miller, and this is a tough one to really balance out. Um, yeah. I've seen it sometimes where like inner healing prayer, it can be like, like, let's say somebody has a physical healing need um, and they, they get convinced in their mind, if I can just find out that like that secret key to unlock my, my inner healing, then I will have outer healing. So for instance, like if I can just find what my great, great grandpa did and unlock, and, you know, repent of a generational sin I didn't know about. And if I can just uh, if I can just discover, you know, some generational spirit, or if I can just cast out some demon I didn't know about, or, you know, those kinds of things. Now, here's the deal. Like, I, I know for a fact that, like, demons can cause sicknesses, like Luke chapter 13, a spirit of disability. And then if you don't address the spirit, like, it might not ever go away. Like, it, or there, I think there can be some generational stuff that's inherited that like might need to be dealt with. Like I, I think there actually is a place for inner healing, but I've seen people put in this place where they feel like they have to be Sherlock Holmes to find out like, you know, what was done four generations ago by my great, great grandpa you know, what sin did he commit that will, if I just repent of it, I can discover how to be set free. And they walk around with this like burden of shame. Like I just have to discover this thing, the secret. And, and to me, I just look at Philippians three and it talks about forgetting what is behind and pressing on toward what is ahead. And he says, all of the mature take such a view and anyone else, God will like, if anyone that doesn't have this mindset, he says, God will reveal to them that word reveal basically what's holding them back. And I just look at it like, I think there's a place for it, but God is not like, you know, trying to hide the key to unlock your healing. I think like you wait on the Lord, you seek the Lord and go through some inner healing prayer. And I think it can be very powerful and I've experienced it myself. Um, but I don't want people to feel like they have to be Sherlock Holmes to unlock the secret to like a life of freedom and healing. That, Miller, does that make sense? Yeah, there's a balance here. Uh, I'm sorry for the echo, you guys. I'm not really sure what to do. Um, Josh, it's you not you. Me. It's Michael's microphone. Oh, okay. Uh, there you go. Michael. Yeah, he's probably muted it already. Okay. Um so the, I think there's a balancing to this uh, and specifically involving praying, praying for somebody like I, there is a sense in which we're told to wait on the Lord. And so if I want to pray for somebody, I don't mind doing an hour long prayer session where sometimes I'm just going to sit and listen. And that may take 15, 20 minutes, but I'm, I'm looking to see if there's something else going on. And maybe I feel like there is something else going on. Now I'll give you an example of this. 
uh, several examples, one with my own wife, but then also just three weeks ago in the Faroe Islands, um, I'm ministering in a church. There's a young girl who uh, has had a uh, allergy issue where she has had a, a runny nose for five straight years, literally nonstop runny nose. The doctors are telling her it's allergies. Now she's uh, 15, I think. And so this has been happening since she was a 10 year old. And um, so I started digging in and asking questions and I'm not trying to be Sherlock Holmes. I'm, I'm asking questions to find out what was going on five years ago. And that, that would, if there was some other outside cause for this, that, that created uh, this reality for her, her. And come to find out that there was a relationship where, uh, that she had with a friend, uh, five, uh, a few years later, she finds out this friend is, has come out of the closet as, as a lesbian. And she feels like if she, uh, she's felt the whole time obligated to be this girl's friend. And then even more so when this girl came out as a lesbian, she felt even more so obligated because if she stopped being friends with her, then everybody's going to think that she's just, you know, homophobic. And so what's happened is this friend of hers is not really a good friend. And at the end of the day, the, this, the reason she's in this friend friendship is because of obligation, not because of the joy it gives her to be this person's friend. And so this woman has actually become an idol. Um, so anyway, uh, she um, gets prayer for this. I have her walk through a prayer of repentance for making this uh, girl uh, an idol in her life. And then we pray for her to be healed. And she was completely set free from that day forward, has not had a runny nose. Now, every day for five years and suddenly on, clearly there's something there. Does that mean there's always something going on? Uh, or is it just at times? At times. Right. And like the thing we, is, we should spend hours figuring it out. We should just pray simply and ask the Lord. And if he gives us something, good. Try right. And trust that he's a good God. And if there is right. something, he'll show you. If you just wait on him, like you're, you're right. James five, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So you share a story about an idolatry that's connected to healing. I have a number of stories myself about a repentance of sin and a healing that's connected to that. And had they not repented for that sin, I don't think that healing would have come. In fact, healing was, it, it usually goes like this. I'll usually start praying for healing and nothing happens. And then we kind of dig a little bit deeper and find right. sort of Me the too. root cause. I think it's going too far to say that there's a one-to-one -one connection that every single person who uh, who is sick, it's because of like a direct sin. We know from John chapter nine, when the disciples ask who sin caused this man's blindness, was it his own or was it his parents? And Jesus says, neither, it was for the glory of God. So we know that not every sickness, not every issue is caused directly by sin. And to Thanks, suggest Michael. that it is actually is abusive because you're condemning people. Um, now, with that said, we don't want to go to the other side and say nothing's caused by sin. So we, we acknowledge that there might be something there. And we just say, you know what, Lord, we just pray. We just wait for you. Lord, if there's something, show us. Search me, oh Lord. Know my heart. Test me. Know my thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me into the way everlasting. We pray and we ask for the mercy of revealed sin. And, and if he shows it and then we repent and we pray, like I have found that like a lot of times healing is connected to it. But we have to we have to admit like there has to be some realm of mystery. Like I don't know why everybody's sick. Like I don't know every like the cause of every sickness. And and so we just wait on the Lord. And if he wants to show us something, and if there's an inner healing issue or whatever, like um, John Wimber has some great stories in his book, Power Healing, about this. That he talks about inner healing as well. Like um, 
I, I would just say, just wait on the Lord. And he's so good. He will show you. And sometimes you, you might wait a little while. It might not be 30 seconds. It might be longer than that. But like, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes. And don't let somebody convince you that if you can just figure out what an ancestor did uh, in 1342, that you can finally be free of a sickness or an addiction or whatever it is. Like, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And Jesus is good. And, um, and, and he's not going to hide from you, whatever it is that's preventing you from gaining freedom. So guys, uh, there, there's a lot more that we could talk about. Maybe we'll continue this next week. We'll see. We're going to talk about it, but, um, thank you so much, uh, for joining us for this episode. Uh, Miller, do you have any just kind of closing thoughts, anything else that you wanted to say before we, we tie this thing up? No, subscribe, like, we like what we're doing. We're thankful we, uh, get check out our conference. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Look at that comp. Yeah, Look at that conference graphic. Uh, Man, Josh, you, did you that made us look sick. so like professional, and you picked one that I have a beard in. Are you insinuating you want me to grow it back, Miller? I mean, it's Josh, the, it's the only way that you can be delivered from baldness. I'll pray ah, for you to hit puberty. Ah, ah. Okay. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Hit that like button, that subscribe button, share this video around, and uh, maybe consider. Uh, donating to the ministry links in the description. God bless you guys and have a great week. Want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.